Pray with me as we get started. Loving Father, as we return to our study of the book of Jeremiah, having addressed some very pressing concerns uh, in our culture in recent uh, weeks and months, we are reminded that, that every bit of your word, of your revelation to us, is entirely relevant to us every day of our lives. And so we, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us the humility to listen carefully, to listen expecting to be changed, expecting to be taught by your Spirit through your Word in ways that are critically important to us as we, as we live out our lives this side of glory for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the advancement of his kingdom. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. Good morning. We are indeed returning to, uh, to a few more messages in Jeremiah. We might just get finished with it without any, any further interruptions. <laughs> our chapter this morning is, uh, is the shortest in the entire book of Jeremiah. The longest chapter has 64 verses. This one has five. That in itself should get our attention. Verse 1 of chapter 45 contains more than 25% of the words in, in the chapter. And all of that first verse is devoted to context, to explaining who it is that God is addressing and what was going on when he addressed that person. Since God saw fit to make the context of, the, of this passage so central uh, to what he's revealing to us, it's important for us to give some thought to the people and events that are mentioned in verse 1. Notice first that the person who actually wrote down the words in this chapter was Baruch himself just as was the case with all of the words in the book of Jeremiah. Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary. He was a scribe uh, by trade, and he was the one that God used to actually write down these words. But the words in this particular chapter are directed to Baruch, and they're not very flattering to Baruch, and that's no small point. The second thing to note from verse 1 is that Jeremiah is the one whom God used to deliver these words to Baruch. But the words weren't from Jeremiah. They were from God through Jeremiah. That, that may seem so simple as to be a, a, a non-issue, but, but sometime soon I want us to seriously dig into the matter of human agency in the Bible, because understanding that issue explains hundreds of things that we find there, and it explains our assignment on earth in, in ways that we need to understand. The one thing I'll point out about human agency from, from Jeremiah 45.1 is a point that is borne out in all of Scripture, and that is that the Holy Spirit did not choose to speak in words and sentences directly to every person. 
in either testament of the Bible, not even to every godly person. The Spirit spoke directly in words to a few faithful men whom he appointed to pass those words along to others. There are two godly men involved in this little passage, both of whom repeatedly put their lives on the line to do God's bidding in the world. Jeremiah and Baruch. But God spoke directly to only one of those men. When God had something to say to Baruch, he delivered those words through Jeremiah. So, to those Christians who insist that if any believer is really walking with God, God is going to speak directly to him or her in words more specific than those that he has revealed through his prophets and apostles and through his Son in his written word. To those who say that if a believer is really in tune with God, God will tell him all kinds of detailed things that he's not going to find in the Bible, my response is a question. Why would God change the mode of revelation that he consistently employed for all of the 1,500 years that he was delivering his written word to humanity? Now, don't get me wrong. When a believer tells me that, that God told him or told her something in actual words, I consider it way above my pay grade to contradict that assertion. But when a believer tells me that that's how God deals with every believer, then I must strongly disagree on clear biblical grounds. All right, back to the passage. In his commentary on this chapter, Philip Ryken uh, shares a very interesting fact about the man Baruch that he discovered in an article in Biblical Archaeology Review several years ago. It seems, that, it seems that Baruch may be the only person from the Old Testament who currently has his fingerprints on file. Actually, it's his thumbprint. Riken explains that in 1975, a group of archaeologists purchased some clay document markers from an Arab antiquities dealer. The archaeologists didn't get around to deciphering the markers, which were the bookmarks of the ancient world, until 1986. When they did, they discovered that one of those markers bears the seal of Baruch, son of Neriah. Since then, Another document marker was discovered that bears not only Baruch's seal, but also a thumbprint, very probably the thumbprint of the scribe himself. In Jeremiah 32, verse 12, we learned that Baruch's grandfather was a, name, uh, a man named Maseah, actually Maaseah. Second Chronicles 34 tells us that Maaseah was governor of the city of Jerusalem during the, the reign of the godly king Josiah. Maaseah had been instrumental in the repairs that King Josiah ordered to the temple in Jerusalem, and, and he was there at the temple when the book of the law of the Moses, the book of the law of Moses was rediscovered in the temple. The, the discovery of that 
that set of documents led to one of the greatest times of revival in the history of Judah. So Baruch had grown up in a very well-known and influential family in Jerusalem, a family very connected both to those who governed and to the priests and the scribes who were the leaders of the religious community. This word from God to Baruch through his immediate supervisor, Jeremiah, came to Baruch, quote, when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And that's very specific, isn't it? God wants us to know what was going on when he presented this rebuke to Baruch, the Baruch rebuke. Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. Baruch had just finished the writing assignment that God gave to Jeremiah at the beginning of chapter 36. See, the timestamp here in chapter 45, verse 1, exactly matches the timestamp in chapter 36, verse, verses 1 and 2. Now, here was that assignment. This is from chapter 36, first couple of verses. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Josiah, king of Judah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations. From the day that I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day, in other words, everything in the book of Jeremiah that God had declared up to the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's rule. Uh, now, the portion of that revelation concerning Israel and Judah probably includes most of chapters 1 through 20 in this book. And the part concerning all the nations probably includes most of chapters 46 through 49. Now, considering how primitive the writing materials were in, in uh, Jeremiah's day, it took a lot of work for Baruch to write down all of those words. And he didn't only have to write the words down. Jeremiah commissioned Baruch to deliver and to read this really long scroll to the temple officials and scribes. And both Jeremiah and Baruch knew that God intended for those words to be read to the king, King Jehoiakim. And that was a problem. Because King Jehoiakim was no friend of Yahweh or of Yahweh's spokesman. He had already executed another prophet named Uriah, recorded in chapter 26, for speaking, quote, words similar to all of those of Jeremiah, end quote. The only reason that Jehoiakim didn't execute Jeremiah the same time he executed Uriah was because a godly scribe named Ahikam, the father of Gedaliah, had hidden Jeremiah to save his life. Now, it's not hard to understand why Baruch, after painstakingly writing down all of the indictments and judgments that God had pronounced against the king and against all of Judah, would have been troubled in his heart uh, when he came to the end of that 
of that writing project. We now learn that on top of all that, Baruch got to be the one to write down God's own rebuke against Baruch. Now, how, how would you like to be given the writing assignment to make a record of God's strongest rebuke against you so that untold millions of people could read about your worst episode of whining for the next 2,500 years? <laughs> Baruch placed this very personal correction from God after all the words of correction that God delivered to his people in this book through Jeremiah, even long after he had received this word from God. Baruch could have inserted these verses in the early part of chapter 36 where they fit historically, but instead he put them right here where they would stand out starkly. It's as if this scribe wanted to make sure that we didn't miss these five verses. And that tells me that Baruch, in the final analysis, very humbly received this rebuke from the living God, and he earnestly desired that it would be very instructive to all who ever encountered this great book of, of Jeremiah. In verses 2 and 3, God begins his word to Baruch in earnest by echoing back to him the words of lament that the scribe had probably spoken to himself in secret or perhaps to his trusted friend Jeremiah. Verse 2, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, ah, woe is me. For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. Isn't it amazing how often we, we grumble and complain in our thoughts or in our conversations with trusted friends or spouses, saying things that we would never want other people to hear us say. But we give no thought to the fact that the God who made us hears every thought. Baruch said, Woe is me, for Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I have found no rest. The wording here makes it seem that Baruch was suffering both emotionally and physically. You know, it's sort of like if, if Bob Deffenbaugh said, Oh, my back, and then immediately said, Oh, my back. <laughs> Baruch has had become weary of having so much to groan about, but, but he had found no relief, no rest. So his groaning had persisted. God's response to Baruch's lament in these uh, last two verses of the chapter, verses 4 and 5, uh, first, is, uh, first includes God's declaration about himself and then God's declaration about Baruch and, and a, a final instruction to Baruch. We'll start with what God says about himself. In verse 4, God says to Baruch, Behold, what I have built, I'm about to tear down, and what I have planted, I'm about to uproot. That is, the whole land. 
And then in verse 5, God expands the scope of this coming judgment to include not only Judah, but all of mankind. He says, Behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares Yahweh. God is saying to Baruch, I hear your every complaint, even when you complain against me in secret. You're convinced that you have cause to lament. You're convinced that I have required too much of you, that your life is too hard because of my hand upon you. But Baruch, you need to understand what's at stake here. What I have built up, I am about to tear down. What I have planted, I am about to uproot throughout the entire land of Judah and throughout the whole earth. I am going to bring disaster upon all of humanity. So Baruch, think again about your complaint against me. I believe there is a strong element of grief in what God says about his own plans here. And that grief is God's own grief. Back in chapter 1, when God commissioned Jeremiah, he said to him, See, I have appointed you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. But it wasn't Jeremiah who would do those things. It was Jeremiah who would proclaim God's intention to do those things. And which of those actions does God delight in doing with all his heart? Plucking up? Tearing down, destroying, and overthrowing, or building and planting? Or does he love to do all of the above equally? Did you know that God has directly answered that question? I addressed this earlier in our study, but it's worth repeating. Because we as his people need to know his answer to that question. What does God do? with all his heart, and with all his soul. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 to 33, immediately after the devastating destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple in the city, as God's judgment against his own people, Jeremiah wrote these words. He said, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant Covenant love. For, listen, for he does not afflict willingly. Literally, he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the sons of men. When you painfully discipline your own beloved child, do you enjoy inflicting that hurt? Neither does God. And we're supposed to know that about God. Isaiah 28 verse 21 describes God's harsh judgment as his strange and alien work. So what is it that God does with all his heart and soul? He tells us that too. Listen carefully to all of the I wills in this marvelous passage I'm about to read to you again. It's from chapter Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 42. 
Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, that means listen up, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And then comes verse 41. One of the most revealing I wills in the whole Bible, brothers and sisters. Here's something you and I need to know about God. God says, when I have planted them in this land, he says, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says Yahweh, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. God's holiness demands that he judge sin, and judge he does. And that judgment is uncompromising. But what God loves to do is redeem and restore and bless. He loves to bring his image bearers into right relationship with himself so that he will be their God and they will be his people. He loves to build and to plant and to prepare a place where he will dwell with his own redeemed people. That's what God says he does with all his heart and with all his soul. And friends, that's why God made his own son the object of his, his fierce and eternal wrath at the cross. Jesus bore upon himself the entire weight of our debt against God for all who trust in him. And so God's, God's hatred of sin, God's anger, God's wrath is not compromised in any way. And God then, for all who trust in Jesus, God does for us what he delights in doing, what he loves to do, what he does with his whole heart and his whole soul. He redeems and restores and makes new and brings us into perfect relationship with himself for all eternity. That's what God loves to do. And because he loves to, to build and to plant and to make new, God's intention through his prophets was always to set before human beings the warning of severe judgment if men do not repent so that they might repent. One of the points in the book of Jeremiah where God makes that intention the very clearest is in chapter 36. The very 
point in history at which God actually delivered to Baruch the, the words that we find in chapter 45. Now listen carefully. As I read the first four chapters of the uh, first four verses, sorry, of chapter 36. They're very instructive. I already read the first two, but I'm going to read it again. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh which he had spoken to him. The toughness of the sacred assignment that God had given to Jeremiah and to Baruch was more than justified by the opportunity for repentance that God was extending to his people through that sacred assignment. Here in chapter 45, right after Baruch had finished writing down thousands of words from God that declared his indictments against his people and his intention to fiercely judge them if they did not repent. God addresses now Baruch's lamentation against God by reminding Baruch what was actually at stake and by weighing Baruch's complaint against that infinitely greater concern. God's words to Baruch here should speak volumes to you and to me. God's agenda through both Jeremiah and Baruch was and still is to turn the hearts of people of, back to himself before his earthly judgments come to an end and his eternal judgment is imposed on all who have not repented. That agenda for these words in Jeremiah is still in effect, beloved. 2,500 years later, God is still doing that through these words. Baruch was weary of life as an agent of God. So God reminded him that what was and is at stake is the soul's of human beings. Nobody among mortal men understood Baruch's lament better than Jeremiah, who has very often been called the weeping prophet because of, of his own repeated words of lament that are found in this book and in the short book of Lamentations. But God's response to Jeremiah's repeated complaints should have already sorted Baruch out on the matter because God's response had never been what we would call sympathetic. 
When Jeremiah pleaded with God back in chapter 12 to judge those who were persecuting him and to bring relief to him, what did God say to him? He said, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? God's response to Jeremiah's complaint was, it hasn't yet gotten as hard as it's going to get, Jeremiah, not by a long shot. And I intend for you to stay the course. Does that sound like, let me kiss your owie? We act as if that's what we want from God. In chapter 15, Jeremiah cried out to God in an impassioned lament because of the terrible loneliness that he felt because he was continually rejected by his own people. And why was he rejected? Because of the things God kept requiring him to do and to say to them. Jeremiah described his his pain as an incurable wound. He even said to God that it appeared as if God himself had deceived and betrayed him. Did God pat Jeremiah on the back and say, I know, I know. I understand why you're reacting this way. It's okay. No. God told Jeremiah to repent in chapter 15. And he told Jeremiah that if and when he did repent, and if he did continue to embrace his God-given assignment with all the suffering that inevitably came along with it, God would protect him and would use him mightily. God would guard him against every threat until God was finished putting him to use. Some of us don't like that assignment. I have no doubt that it was very painful for Jeremiah to deliver God's rebuke against Baruch. You know, the Baruch rebuke. It was hard for Jeremiah to deliver that rebuke against his own faithful co-worker, a man who had already risked his life repeatedly to remain at Jeremiah's side, assisting with Jeremiah's task. But if Baruch was expecting Jeremiah to go along with his complaint against God, he was barking up the wrong tree because Jeremiah already knew God's answer even before God told him to speak these words to Baruch. By embracing God's agenda, Jeremiah had come to know without question that he was relegating himself to live as a pariah among his own people, a man despised and forsaken, just as the, the preeminent prophet and the king of kings and the creator of everything that exists was despised and rejected by his own people. The servant is not greater than the master, beloved. And we are called to be servants of the living God. 
Neither of these two men was ever given the luxury of demanding a limit to his own suffering for doing God's work. And neither are you and I. We never get to demand a limit to our suffering this side of glory for doing the work that God has given us to do, even if that suffering is to the point of death. There's simply too much at stake for our temporary well-being to be our concern or to be the concern that drives God's requirement of us. God's words to Baruch indicate that he was expecting more than that Baruch was expecting more than just a ceiling on his suffering. God said to him, "But you, Baruch, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them." As I mentioned earlier, Baruch was from an influential family, very likely a, a well-to-do family. His complaint against God went further than simply wanting to be done with all the hardship. He wanted to prosper in his life as men measure prosperity. Perhaps he hoped to become a governor like his grandfather. If so, <laughs> writing down all of God's words through Jeremiah would have been a really big disappointment because those words proved that pretty soon there'd be nothing to govern. The disciples of Jesus were guilty of the same kind of ambitious pride as Baruch. In Mark chapter 10, as Jesus was walking toward Jerusalem with his disciples for the last time, he took the twelve men aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, Behold, listen up, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him. They will scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. How did the disciples respond to that staggering revelation? Well, James and John, apparently egged on by their mother, practically demanded that Jesus give them the positions of highest honor and authority in his kingdom. How did Jesus respond to them? He told all of his disciples that they were going to drink the same cup that he was about to drink. And then he said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's word to his children, whenever we become selfishly ambitious, 
Whenever we become enamored with worldly comforts and security and significance, God's answer is always the same. The servant is not greater than the master. Baruch's faithfulness in serving Jeremiah and Yahweh had gotten him none of the things that men seek. It had not gotten him power, influence, wealth, or any other form of what this world would call greatness. Instead, Baruch's faithfulness had made him the public enemy of his own people together with Jeremiah. And the attitude of the people toward Baruch wasn't going to get better after he received this, this, these words of correction from God. It was going to get worse. In chapter 43, the small remnant of Judahites who survived the fall of the city of Jerusalem accused Baruch of manipulating Jeremiah into betraying them through Jeremiah's persistent prophecies of, of God's judgment against them. They had fled to Egypt in complete disobedience against God, and now they were accusing Baruch of inciting Jeremiah against them. Beloved, our agenda cannot be to seek great things for ourselves, even if the only greatness that we seek is comfort and peace in this life. That kind of life is incompatible with our calling in Christ. Our agenda must match up with God's calling. And God's calling in our lives is for us to speak truth into this world and to live lives that honor him no matter what it costs us. And Jesus told us already in John chapter 15 and 16 that what that would get us is the same hatred from the world that the world has toward Christ. So is that all there is? Is our only consolation in the sufferings of this life to know that God will be glorified through that suffering? Is our own ultimate well-being to be of no concern to us? God's answer is a wonderful no. In God's last declaration to Baruch in this passage, God says to him, I will give you your life as the spoils of war in all the places where you may go. God promised Baruch life, not as the leftovers of a spent existence, but as the spoils of a victory won, not lost. This was exactly the same promise that God made to Ebed-Melech earlier in the book after that faithful servant from King Zedekiah's household had rescued Jeremiah out of a waterless cistern that the king had allowed him to be cast into. In chapter 39, verse 18, God said to Ebed-Melech, For I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword. He's talking about when the city falls but you will have your own life as the spoils of war because you have trusted in me, declares Yahweh. You will have your own life as 
as the winnings of a victory won, not lost, as the treasure of a victory won, because you have trusted in me. God's promise to all who trust in him is that we will come through the sufferings of this earthly existence with our life as the treasure of victory, his victory. Why does a woman who has experienced the exceedingly great and seemingly endless pain of childbirth continue to willingly bear more children? <laughs> because of the surpassing greatness of the outcome of that pain. I can take any kind of hardship for a time if I know that the blessedness of the outcome is going to make that hardship pale by comparison. And so can you, beloved. That is exactly how God speaks of our hope in Christ. The hope that the writer of Hebrews says is the anchor of our souls for the, our, the whole time that we spend on this earth. In Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul, Paul writes that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4 says essentially the same thing. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You hear a lot of talk these days about being on the right side of history. <laughs> Beloved, the life that we have received through faith in Jesus Christ puts us on the right side of eternity. We have been made more than conquerors. On the winning side of Christ's everlasting victory over sin and the curse. And the life that he has already given to us as the spoils of that everlasting victory, is the life that consists of eternal relationship with the living God and with his people in the glorious place that he has prepared for us to dwell with him. You and I, we can endure any hardship during the short time that we have on this earth when we know that that is the glorious outcome. So let's stop complaining. Let's keep on rejoicing and let's encourage one another to stop complaining and to keep rejoicing. Let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.
Dear Father, your word tells us that the days are short and the time is coming very soon when our great God and Savior Jesus will return to judge all of creation and to claim his own. Our lives here and now are like the last hours of night before the glorious dawn of his coming. Until then, Father, we are the lampstand for the only light that exists on this earth, the light of your word that we share and of your presence that we bear. Make us, your church, a good lampstand, undistracted and undeterred by temporary concerns that are going to fade forever into insignificance when Jesus returns. May his light shine brightly through us until that day. We ask it in his incomparable name. Amen.